Um, hymn number 559, Oh, How Great is Your Compassion. And remember the last couple times we've done hymn studies, we've kind of done our best to distinguish between um, good hymns, okay hymns, and maybe not so good hymns. And it's, it's uh, again, not that all of the hymnals, uh, all the hymns in our, our hymnal can't be sung, but we only sing hymns from our hymnals. That's just that's what we promise to do in, in our synod. We, we use synodically approved worship materials, and we actually mean our promises, so, so we stick to that. But even inside of our own hymnal, there, there are some hymns that are um, necessarily a little bit better than ours, uh, others. And, and so remember, a, a good hymn is about what? Not just God. That's an okay hymn. Yeah, an okay hymn is about Jesus. A good hymn is about Jesus for me. And there's a difference between those two things. There, there is. If all I do is sing about a historical event that has no bearing on me, um, that's okay. And that's educational. But where's the comfort? The, the reason that these things actually start to hit home is because they, they carry forward. And you can see this even about um, secular songs. Um, secular songs that actually deal with what you're going through. Even, um, you know, the national anthem applies to you. It's not just a historical event, but it's something that you are tied to. Um, a, a good hymn is about Jesus for you. So not just Jesus, but Jesus who is delivered to you in word and sacrament. Jesus who actually helps sinners. Jesus who dies for you. Um, uh, an okay hymn is just about Jesus. That's, that's still not bad. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, not such a great hymn is about who? Me. And so honestly, if, if the hymn is talking more about what I'm doing for God than what he is doing for me, just stop for a second. Because is that really the foundation of your religion? Is the foundation of your religion what you are doing for God? Or is the foundation of your religion Christ, who is the cornerstone? Which I think is a Bible passage. It's got to be the latter. Because if you want to base your whole religion on how much you feel towards God, that's not always going to be a firm foundation. And sometimes that shifts. If... I'm sorry that your pencil is broken. If we build on what we are doing for God, um, sometimes that just makes us into either Pharisees or flat-out hypocrites. If we sing about, however, what Christ has done for us, this is something firm. This is a foundation that we can build on. This is Christ who is crucified and raised. And so in all of our hymns, um, we do actually pay attention to what we're singing here. It's not just that we're we're aiming for um, the tune, um, but ultimately we're aiming to, to proclaim what we believe, which is what every organization does, religious or otherwise. If you walk into a church that sings nothing like what we sing, you'll still understand what they believe by listening to their music. You absolutely will. If you go into a church and they're only singing about their emotion towards God, and of course there's a big band to, to you know, encourage that, and there's lasers and lights and smoke, well, you know what's important to them. It's important that this be entertaining and heartfelt. If you come into one of our churches, and you listen to us sing about Jesus for us. Well, you know what we believe. And for that matter, you also get to, to help your neighbor this way. Um, it's great if you feel a lot for Jesus, but what if your neighbor doesn't and really needs to? How do you help that? You tell them who your God is and what he's done for them. And again, that, that isn't rooted in me my relationship with God that's rooted in what he has done for me, which is what we sing about. So uh, the hymn that we're going to be tackling today then is, Oh, How Great Is Your Compassion. So we're going to do this thing and try and figure out if it's a good hymn, an okay hymn, or, or not such a good hymn. Uh, ver, uh, stanza one. Oh, how great is your compassion, faithful Father, God of grace, that with all our fallen race, in our depth of degradation, you had mercy so that we might be saved eternally. Is that 
Jesus, Jesus for us, or me? That's Jesus for us. That's Jesus who would come into this world and save me. And this has everything to do with our gospel lesson today. The, the gospel lesson for the 11th Sunday after Trinity is uh, St. Luke chapter 18, um, beginning at uh, verse 9. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, which is our gospel lesson this day. Jesus also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collectors, time out. If this were a hymn, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. If that were set to music, would that be a good hymn, an okay hymn, or a bad hymn? That would be a bad hymn. Bad. bad. Why? Uh, who's it about? It's about us. Um, and, and us can't save us. We need Jesus to save us. Um, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. If we were to set that to music and say, I don't know, like, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Just hypothetically. Um, would that be a good hymn, an okay hymn, or a bad hymn? That'd be a good hymn. What? That's correct, honey. All right, there is only one Jesus, and he comes to all of our churches. Um, I tell you, the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does the Pharisee receive mercy? Is he the better behaved guy? Okay, so as long as he acknowledges the things that, that come from God, he can be saved because of his acknowledging it? So as long as he does the repenting, so as long as he asks God for forgiveness, <laughs> there we go. We, we actually want to look to the places where God is working. And ultimately, this is the difference. Are you looking towards yourself and by consequence your neighbor, or are you looking towards God? Where is your help? This is it. And so if you were to ask the tax collector, what are you looking for mercy? And he's not saying, my faith have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's not saying, my, my repentance have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's not saying, my prayer. He's saying, my Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy comes ultimately from God. And so we acknowledge then that, that repentance does wrestle with contrition. That, that faith does seek God, and it ought to seek God. Faith in Jesus goes to Jesus. But faith in Jesus isn't in faith in faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And these are things that are easy to mix up. And I'm not saying that, that we're wrong in it, because the, the sanctified, the, the, believe, the believing person does seek Jesus where he may be found. It's a commandment. Honor the, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You ought to want to do these things. It's good to do these things. But your hope for salvation is not in these things, but the thing that is being given through these things. In other words, um, when you're you playing baseball and you're at bat, what are you supposed to keep? 
You're in T-ball. What are you supposed to keep your eye on when you're bat? The ball. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Um, anytime we take our eyes off of this, we start swinging at the wrong thing. And it usually goes a whole lot more poorly. Um, I want to go First Peter chapter 1, 3 to 5. Poorly, because uh, we're sinners and we mess things up a lot. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that time. Um, this is a question of point of reference. When we talk about righteousness, this is entirely a question of point of reference. Because at the end of the day, um, I, I have to acknowledge to you, as a pastor, which one of these members would make my life easier, having the Pharisee or the tax collector in church? Do I want the person who comes every single Sunday, who ties, who isn't ever caught in gross sin that I need to go and confront him about? Or do I want the person who comes sparingly, doesn't tithe, if you listen to the Pharisee, cheated on his wife, um, grips people. It, one, we can clearly say, yes, according to God's own law, is behaving better outwardly. We're not supposed to hate the Pharisee for his works. If anything, we ought to wish that we were more like this. And you can go through it. If, if our Bible study attendance actually reflected our church attendance, what a miracle. If our church attendance actually reflected our membership roles, what a miracle. I mean, if, if we really wanted to be legalists about this and, and start talking about tithing 10%, we would not hurt for money here. We just wouldn't. If we really want to say everybody who commits gross sin needs to be confronted about it, good. good. It's not bad, these things that the Pharisee is doing, but what is his point of reference for righteousness? His point of reference for righteousness is what? Huh? Not even just his works and not even just himself. Look to it. Lord, I thank you that I am not like, not just others, this tax collector. His point of reference is the other guy. As long as I'm better than him, doing all right. Which is honestly my point of reference for righteousness most of the time because I'm a sinner. And so, I might not be the fastest, in the race, but I am sure not coming in last. I might not be the best father in the world, but at least I didn't do this. I might not be the best pastor, but look at these guys, these lazy guys, these guys preaching false doctrine. Not perfect, but my point of reference, if my point of reference is my neighbor, then it has to be in works. Just be better than him. And the Pharisee objectively is. Right? questions? What's the tax collector's point of reference? Where does righteousness come from for him? Not from being better than his neighbor, but from Jesus. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If there's going to be any righteousness, it better come from him. This is where we start to, to see the difference in these things. When we're only looking at our neighbor to gauge our righteousness, you'll never be saved. Not by this. Um, let alone, we start to ignore our own sins because we're doing better. Is the Pharisee breaking a sin as he 
throws the tax collector under the bus, uh, breaking a commandment, excuse me, as he throws the tax collector under the bus. What's the eighth commandment? You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. And the Pharisee says, but it's true. And I say, my favorite little book says that that's not enough. We should fear and love God that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation. But defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. But does that matter? Because he's objectively better behaved. See, what happens with this is, if we, you and I are running a race, and I know that you can run a race in 30 seconds, and I know I can run the race in 10 seconds, I don't need to run it in 10 seconds, though. Or what if we get chased by a bear? I don't need to be faster than the bear. I just need to be faster than you. Is that regard for your neighbor first? Is that a striving towards genuine sanctification, genuine goodness? Or does that teach us then to ignore our sin and stop trying as long as we're outwardly doing better than the next guy? Are you starting to see why there's no salvation in this? I hope. Jesus isn't involved at all. If your point of reference is just behaving better than your neighbor, you don't need Jesus for that. You just need really crappy neighbors. Because they misbehave and make you look better. You got a question? No? You still kind of chewing on it? All right, hang on. Be with me. All right, so here's our, our first stanza again. Oh, how great is your compassion, faithful Father, God of grace, that with all our fallen race, in our depth of degradation, you add mercy so that we might be saved eternally. By making our point of reference the Lord, it groups all the sinners together then, doesn't it? It's not have mercy on me and I guess that other guy. It's all of us who are in this together. And yes, your sins might look different than my sins. My favorite ones might seem really weird and gross to you, and your favorite ones might seem really weird and gross to me. But that really says more about me than it says about you. That I have normalized some sins so much that I don't think they're that bad, but when I actually see one I'm not comfortable with, that's a really bad one. What if God has to have mercy upon all of us equally by dying upon a cross for sinners? When our point of reference is the Lord and His mercy, and quite frankly, His law, that, that demands sacrifice. Um, we have to look to Christ, all of us, that we might be saved eternally. Because when our point of reference is Christ, our hope then is not to be more righteous than someone else, but just righteous. When we have to be more righteous than somebody else, we literally say, Lord, save me, not him. That is ultimately the prayer. God, this is where you're drawing the line for righteousness. I'm past it, and you can tell that I'm past it because he's not. So hurry up and damn him so that I can get my rewards. Is that Christian? It better not be. That's sin. If that is your point of reference towards doing good before the Lord, that somebody else is worthy of condemnation and you're better than them, repent. To look to Christ for righteousness then seeks mercy from God for sinners. And then we can start to call a spade a spade here and say all of us are poor, miserable sinners. All of us need this mercy. All of us are joined together in this way. Are you with me on this? Yeah? yeah? Questions or comments? Especially from grown-ups? <laughs> all right, stanza two. Your great love for this has striven that we may from sin made free live with you eternally. Your dear Son himself has given and extends his gracious call to his supper leads us all. By this, good him, okay him, bad him. Is this about me, Jesus, or Jesus for me? Yeah. 
Jesus for us. It's not even just that God is God and powerful and great. It's great that God is great. I'm not, and that doesn't help me. It's great that God made sunshine. But unless I'm in need of sunshine, that doesn't have much to do with me. And there are times when I really need to look to the fact that I need sunshine. I need daily bread. But more than I need daily bread, I need Christ. And there I can actually start to see daily bread as a gift and not as something to be earned or bought or bartered. I want to go Romans 6. We'll do 3 to 7 and then 18 to 23. Romans 6, verses 3 to 7 and then 18 to 23. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then skipping down to uh, 18 to 23. Having been set free from sin, uh, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time of the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and you become slaves to God. And the fruit that you get yields sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we talk about this idea that, that Christians do good works, do Christians do good works? Must Christians do good works? Absolutely they must. You know why? Because you're holy. What comes from good trees? Good fruit. Like, it's just, it, it becomes a question of what is your nature? What, what is your ownership? If, if you are dying, your nature will be death. If you are alive in Christ and holy in Christ, yes, of course, your nature will be holy things. Good works are not bad. Good works are good. Good works are not optional. Good works happen in the lives of Christians. They absolutely do. The question, though, is whether or not Christianity is a bait and switch when it comes to good works. In other words, is Christianity, Jesus for sinners, Jesus for sinners, oh, you're in, now go do good works. Come and receive the free gift, eternal life for you. All right, now that you're in, uh, let's focus a whole lot less on that because the church needs a trustee. Will you do good works here? Is that Christianity, bait and switch? No. Even as this begins and then goes to talk a lot about good works, what does it close on? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sanctification is simply this. Be near Jesus, for Jesus works holy things through you. Jesus works life in you. Jesus works good in you. So be near Jesus. The call to Christianity is this. Be united with Christ so that you can die to sin and rise to newness of life, which we call baptism. For we were baptized into Christ, we're buried with Christ, and raised with Christ. The hope is that the life of the believer would be then daily with Christ, who works these good things through you. So relax. 
the focus, again, the point of reference, must be God. When we want to make the point of reference our neighbor, even after the fact that we are Christians, again, it sort of turns into a bait and switch real, real quick. I'm not saying don't look to your neighbor to serve them, but I am saving look to your Lord for one who tells you what your vocation is and how you ought to behave in it with his law, but more, actually empowers it with the gospel, actually tells you who you are and makes you that way. He makes you holy. So that when you look at your neighbor, you don't do so with a point of reference of being better, but of God who seeks mercy for them. And the mercy will work itself out because God works through you. Are you with me on this? Questions or concerns? Comments? Let's go. Yes, ma'am. Comments? Comments are that. You're telling me things that you think. Um, you, do, you do that a lot. Let's go Luke 14, 12 to 14. Luke 14, 12 to 14. Luke 14, 12 to 14. Jesus also said to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite the friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you and return you and return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Um, what guides the call to the feast? Point of reference this way or point of reference towards God? towards God. Wouldn't it be great if all the people that God loved and wanted to see fed got fed? That's enough. That really is. And then you start to look at the people in front of you as those who might need mercy and not those who might repay me or make me look good. Our point of reference before we look to our neighbor must be our Lord. Otherwise, mercy doesn't really guide this thing anymore. It becomes an economy. We buy and sell, we trade and barter, we win and lose. But if we really are the redeemed, united by Christ, then we look to him and say, look, let's make sure that everybody's being helped. Who are my neighbors that have been given to me? And we do this thing with uh, the Good Samaritan um, because we're Lutheran um, and we know a good law gospel um, narrative when we see one. And so I say then, you know, you know the Good Samaritan story, right? And so this is, this is given to somebody who says, who is my neighbor? And the point of it is, everyone's my neighbor. And since I can't take care of everyone, the whole point is I must acknowledge that I'm a sinner who can't take care of everyone, repent, receive forgiveness, and then ignore everyone, right? Because if I can't save anyone, why would I, if I can't save everyone, why would I save anyone? If I can't help everyone, why would I help anyone? As long as I know that I'm a sinner, it doesn't matter that you're suffering. Your suffering is clearly here for the sole purpose of making me feel bad. Because the whole world is about me, right? No? Oh, that, that's horrible? Okay. Um, yes, everyone is your neighbor. I acknowledge this. But you love different neighbors differently. That's called vocation. You love the neighbors that are put in front of you. Everyone is your neighbor. Which means you don't get to pick and choose who's put in front of you. But the parents that you are given are God-given parents. In other words, God could have given you anyone, even the parents you covet, but he gave you yours. And he says, these are your neighbor. Love them this way. For he explains to you in his law, honor them. And he could give you any next-door neighbor, but he gave you that one. 
And I can say, I wish I had one who didn't do this. But God says, you have this neighbor. Love them in this way. Look to the table of duties. You could have any government, anyone you covet. But you've got this one. And so God says, when you look to your leaders, remember them this way. Everyone is your neighbor, but we love our neighbors differently. I don't love my wife the way I love my children, the way I love you. That'd be weird. It would. We love according to what we've been given. But again, our point of reference in that is still mercy, which comes from God. You have questions on this? Concerns? All right. Um, I want to go Luke 5, 29 to 32. Luke 5, 29 to 32. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I love you. All right, Luke 5, 29 to 32. It reads, Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's this thing that Jesus does every time he sits down to eat dinner with somebody. Every single time there's table fellowship. What does he do? He teaches. There is something that's always coupled to God feeding his people. And that's also God teaching his people. So that in this stanza, your great love for this has striven that we may from sin made free live with you eternally. Your dear son himself has given and extends his gracious call to his supper leads us all. Um, Of course, forgiveness then would be attached to where God feeds his people. Because the teaching is nothing more than this. Jesus died for you sinners. So that as God is explaining things to not just his, dis, um, his enemies who eat with him, but even his, his own disciples who eat with him, what's he pointing to every time? Right. He points to himself and what he does for his people. And so he says, in this one, those who are well have no need of the physician. It's those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, Jesus, even as he's teaching this thing, is pointing towards the forgiveness that is attached to this meal, delivered through this meal. Um, There's a promise that is attached to this meal. Eat and drink for the forgiveness of sins. It's in the words of institution. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you for the remission of sins. That we would learn about this thing to find mercy within it. Again, it, it frames where we ought to look. So that supper then is not sort of the elite or the elect gathering to talk about how terrible everyone else is and how much better we are than them. But it's look how God has gathered all of us sinners and united us in his mercy. That I receive mercy from God and so does my neighbor. Are you with me? Questions or comments here? Keep going. Stanza three. How are we doing? We're doing. Uh, Stanza three. Firmly to our soul's salvation witnesses your spirit, Lord, in your sacraments and word. There he sends true consolation, giving us the gift of faith that we feel fear not hell nor death. Where is true consolation by this gift? By this by this stanza. The sacrament and words. Why do we have these, these word and sacraments in church? 
yeah, we actually do need to receive these things. Um, we actually need these gifts given to us. Simply to talk about them does nothing but increase the desire for them. And so we actually want to make sure that they're present here for sinners. It's sort of like when you're hungry, does watching a commercial about a hamburger make you less hungry? It makes you more hungry. Does eating a hamburger make you less hungry? Maybe we ought to have word and sacrament in church. That, that when we come here, we would do more than just try and pretend that we've got no problems. Let's all get together once a week and pretend we're not hungry. Or at least less hungry than that tax collector. That doesn't save. Look to God, who's poured out these gifts in these ways so that you might know that you've actually got them. And so when you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, how does God answer? This is mercy for you. You are forgiven. It's right here. Eat it and drink it. It's right here. Splash around in it. It's right here. Listen to the absolution of your pastor. God actually delivers mercy to you within these walls. That's why we've got these walls. Otherwise, we're wasting our time here. We truly are. Because you can think about how much better you are than other people, other places. You actually probably do that a lot already. You can think about how much you love God anywhere. Honestly, you could probably do that already. But to actually receive mercy, go to where God has promised to be found. He says, I am here in my sacraments and word. And so this is where we go to. This is the only way we're taught not to fear hell or death. I want to go Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Yes, ma'am. Why did Jesus die? He died to forgive your sins because sin actually hurts people. And so there needs to be punishment. So Jesus loves you so much that he is punished for your sins and for my sins and for everyone's sins so that we can be forgiven and live. Okay. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Where are we comforted? And our iniquity being pardoned and our warfare being ended, and receiving double from the Lord's hand for all our sins. Double, so not just enough, but an abundance of mercy. God doesn't hand out portions of mercy here. He doesn't say, some of your sins are forgiven, come back next week and I'll forgive a few more. He, he doesn't, huh? They're all forgiven. And in the same way, he doesn't say, you're a little bit holier now than you were last week, keep coming back and you'll work your way towards not sinning anymore at all. Which, both of which of, of these things are, are taught by churches in the name of Christianity. There, there is a, a Roman Catholic church that teaches that baptism only forgives certain sins, sins up to the point of your baptism. After that, you're on your own with contrition, repentance, absolution, and penance. So Roman Catholic church, absolution is only for the sins that you confess, not for all of them. Here, some of your sins are forgiven. Keep coming back. Which, I don't know. What if God actually says when there's mercy, there's enough mercy, all of the mercy, an abundance of mercy, double for all your sins. You can even do this in terms of sanctification too. The Protestants work this way, that if you really, really dedicate your life to Jesus, each, more you'll be given a, each week you'll be given a little bit more holiness until you can finally say, um, like major Christian authors like Joyce Meyer, that she has not sinned in years. If you ask Joyce Meyer if she has sinned in the last 20 years, she will tell you no. 
She's on the record for it. 20 years. I can't make it 20 minutes. Maybe she's just better at this stuff, but I doubt it. God says, here's mercy for you. Whenever you come in, there's mercy for you. Whenever you say, Lord, help, he's already answering. Here, it's, it's here and it's for you. All your sins are forgiven, all the time. We just pour out mercy here. Because as it turns out, we're willing to be honest, we need that much. God doesn't give you just enough. Because he loves you. It's like a potluck. Do y'all worry about bringing just enough food here? I've never seen that. What kind of food do we bring here? Huh? Because we bring an abundance. A double portion. And we take some home. But at the end of the day, I'd rather take some leftovers home than run out of food here. Wouldn't you? I'd rather see everyone fed. So we bring double portions. That's mercy. That's love. It's not about, will you bring enough and I'll bring just enough and we want to make sure that everybody gets just so. Equal number of calories. We say, come back, get seconds. There's tons of desserts too. How much more so with God? This is the mercy that, that binds us, that holds us together. Um, and this is where we start to then confront our fears. First uh, John, not regular John, but First John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, 16 and 19. So we have come to know and believe that the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. What casts out fear? Love. What happens when I'm afraid again? Here's more love. Ultimately, on the last day, you will be perfected and you have nothing left to fear. But over and over again, our message is this. Don't be afraid. For Jesus is for you. Don't be afraid. For Christ has cast out all sin that has anything to do with punishment. He has taken it upon himself and buried it at the cross. Christ is for you, over and over and over again. This is how we stare down the Lord without worrying about punishment. And again, it's a point of reference. As the Pharisee stands before the Lord, why is he unafraid? Because of who the Lord is, or because how much his neighbor screws up? That's a bad frame of reference. It just is. For one, you're throwing him under the bus, which means you have no regard for your neighbor, and that's sin. But, but for two... Being able to run a race faster than me will not win you a gold medal. That is a very low standard. Honestly, if, if, if your goal is just to pick the worst guy in the room and be slightly better at him, that does not make you good. Far from it. Honestly, if you're a better chef than me, that does not say a lot about you. I still wouldn't go to your restaurant. Be good. But this mercy, this goodness, this holiness, it comes from God in an abundance. So look there. That's where fear is cast out. Um, are you with me? Questions? Comments? Lord, your mercy will not leave me. Ever will your truth abide. Then in you will I confide. Since your word cannot deceive me, my salvation is to me safe and sure eternally. Where are we taught to trust? First Corinthians 15, 17 to 23. 
1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 23. Oh, come here, you. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 23. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so also by a man has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. How, where are we taught to trust? Not just Christ, not just Christ who helps me behave better, Christ who is what? Christ who is risen from the dead. For if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Christ has not been raised from the dead and he really just teaches you how to be better behaved than other people in this world, we are of people most to be pitied. We, we truly are. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, this, this then becomes where we are taught to trust. Christ, who is crucified for me, is risen. And this God who is risen has promised me an abundance of mercy. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he is faithful and, and forgives us our sin. I'm taught to, for, to confess my sins to Jesus by the fact that he continues to forgive them. I would never cop to this stuff if I knew that the punishment for it was hell. And neither would you. You blame me but everybody else or say, well, at least I'm better than this tax collector. But you can actually say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, only if you expect mercy, forgiveness. This comes from, again, a point of reference in looking towards God, not in towards the neighbor. We look for mercy chiefly here. Last one. I will praise your great compassion, faithful Father, God of grace, that with all our fallen race, in our de depth of degradation, you had mercy so that we might be saved eternally. Here, we're finally actually acknowledging praise for God. We are doing something. Good. Who's done all the work so far? Christ. Is this an okay hymn, a good hymn, or a bad hymn? It's a good hymn. All the way through, it's been Christ for us, and yes, of course, we respond to it. Yes, of course, we praise God to it. But, but that is not what makes the hymn the hymn. Have you ever said thank you to somebody who's never done anything for you? There's only one way, way you might do that. Either you're mistaken, two. I guess you could be mistaken, or you could be really sarcastic and just try and guilt them into doing this, right? Thank you for holding that door for me. What do you really mean? I wish that you would have held that door for me. That's not praise. If you're going to talk about praise toward God without actually acknowledging what it is that he's doing for you, at best, at best, you're just very full of yourself. But really, it, it turns bitter pretty quick. Because it's hard to praise God for things you're not seeing. So we sing about the things that he's doing for us. And the tense here actually does matter. I will praise your great compassion, faithful Father, God of grace, that with all our fallen race and our depth of degradation, you had mercy so that we... What's the tense of this? Had. Past tense. The mercy has already been completed. That's where the praise is coming from. Christ is crucified. Christ is risen. This then starts to shape our, our entire understanding. 
And you'll notice in our gospel reading, it's the opposite tense that the tax collectors, or excuse me, that the Pharisees hoping. Uh, Luke 18, 9 to 14, one, one more time. Look for what tense the Pharisee is hoping in. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What's this hope in? Something past or not? It's in the works that he's doing right now. But if the works that he's doing right now start to falter or start to fade, then what can he fall back on? I guess I hope I'm still better than someone. But that doesn't save. Mercy comes from God in abundance. And so the, the, the tax collector, for him to even stand there, he has to know something. God is merciful to sinners. God has been merciful to sinners. And that, that past tense action carries forward to a present tense. Does what God did in the past have something to do with now? If it doesn't, we're wasting our time. That's the difference between an okay hymn and a good hymn. An okay hymn is something God did in the past, but it has no real connection to right now. What makes it good is that he shows me how what he has already accomplished helps me here and now in this problem, in this sin, in this fear. And this, this then lets me plead for mercy in, in joy. And even praise, knowing where it's coming from. Are you guys with me? Questions or comments, concerns? All right, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all so much.